0: Welcome to episode number 146 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording right here in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Support for this episode comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, reminding you to reduce, reuse, recycle, and compost. Avoid using those single-use products whenever possible, and remember to bring your reusable bags whenever you go shopping. Also, when hungry for breakfast or lunch, think of the deli at Jackson Hole Marketplace, only a short distance south of town. They're using fresh baked bread from a valley bakery and boar's head meat to build certain yum, yum, yum. Get on down there and see what we're talking about. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stefan Abrams, your host. Thank you everybody who are the regular listeners and checking in again, and for all you new listeners as well. Please get out there and share this podcast so everybody can learn and experience something new. Another big ask is give it five stars. Makes it easier for other people to find this podcast and enjoy listening just like you do. I feel we all have a story to share, and I wanna bring you stories which you're gonna connect with and will hopefully add a little bit of good energy to your day. We sure do know we can all use it. Sharing stories is what I learned doing growing up as a kid in my grandfather's hardware store back in Mississippi, and I love hearing other people's stories. And today, my storyteller is Dr. Gary Rubin. He talks a little bit with an accent, and today you're gonna hear Gary's story, and I bet you'll figure out quickly where he just got that accent from. But more importantly, Gary has saved countless lives through a little small device he helped invent and obtaining several higher education degrees, which I really can't count that many. I couldn't keep up with them. Gary is still actively improving people's lives, especially right here in Jackson. Now as a co-founder of a new venture to save lives, Mountain Air Medical, Gary is giving back to his community in a very special way. Gary, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's fabulous to get to sit down with somebody in person during all this past year and very excited to learn about your life and your impacts to the world. And I like to start all of the interviews with people sharing their connection to Jackson Hole. And you had shared with me how how many years you've been here. You said about 25. I'm curious as to 25 years ago, how did you find this place initially?
1: Stefan, thanks. I began life uh, in a very rural community in the mountains in the Brisbane Valley, uh, west of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. As you can tell from my accent that I've never lost. Uh, hmm. Queensland is a bit like the, uh, the deep south of uh, compared to New York or Boston in the US. So we're way north up in the tropics. It's sugarcane, cattle. Uh, Mining, and that's where it started. But I started uh, with uh, working on dairy farms and cattle ranches around where I lived, and grew a deep love for horses, which is how I got to Jackson. Because, in fact, much later in life, um, and never expected any of these opportunities to to occur. In fact, as a young man, um, a boy in this very isolated sort of somewhat impoverished backward part of Australia uh, to end up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming is beyond anything I could have dreamed. I didn't know anything about the U.S. I didn't know there was a place called Wyoming, let alone Jackson Hole. Hmm. So with a love of horses, when I uh, was about 40, I started... Seeing what I could do with my horse skills and riding skills, and I was an ex-rugby player when I was young and always into very competitive sports, I was playing polo. And I was playing polo in Jackson, Mississippi. And it was the middle of summer, and it was stinking hot. And uh, one of the guys said, you know, we got to find some cooler high country place where we can go in the summers and play polo. And one of the guys had a connection to Jackson, and said, we should go out there and uh, take a look. And they have a polo club out there. Actually, it was just in the early days, uh, Paul von Gontard, a very well-known Jackson rancher had started what he called Cowboy Polo, Hmm. which was sort of suited me because I was a bit of an Australian cowboy, if you will. And so we came out here and, uh, and looked the three couples. were going to chip in and buy some land where we could keep horses during the summer. It turned out that just, uh, myself and my, uh, wife to be Peter, she, um, and I came out and we looked and we didn't find anything. We came back and we both loved to ski. So we skied. And then we got a call about a place uh, that was available here, but 20 acres. And so about 24 years ago, now we purchased that and, uh, that's how I got to Jackson Horses.
0: I, I love it. I love it. And now you and your wife, Peter, um, is that the pronunciation? Yeah, Peter. Yeah. Peter? yeah. Um, are full-time residents. And you have a fascinating history. I appreciate you starting off there about where you were raised in, in Australia. I'd love for you to share what it was like for you growing up in Australia and then we can get into some of the other very impactful, amazing things that you've done in your life as well. It was an
1: uh, interesting childhood. We lived in this rural community. My parents uh, had some hard times. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, my father ran at the end of uh, his other attempts at, at business, ran a little 24 uh, 7 uh, sort of uh, corner grocery store in the village centre. was the only store by the school, by the church, by the cemetery, by the little fairgrounds. And uh, we we rented a, an old farmhouse and it had outside plumbing and open tanks that were provided with water from an old well, which originally had a windmill. So it was pretty uh, mean circumstances. I walked uh, about a mile to school, uh, crossed creeks, uh, two teacher school and we managed, I managed to uh, to get a horse and I used the horse to w- to do work for a, uh, a guy who was a cattle dealer who kept his cattle on the property where we rented this house. And so he would knock on my door at 4.30 in the mornings and, and I'd get up and saddle up my little old broken down pony and bring the cattle in for him and work for him a couple of days a week. And it was... Um, interesting childhood. Uh, again, could never have imagined ending up as I did uh, in Jackson Hall, 15 years in New York City, some of the biggest and most successful uh, academic cardiology programs in the world. Because at that stage, um, the thought of going past high school, let alone going to college, none of my siblings went to college.
0: How many siblings do you
1: have? I had uh, a sister and two brothers. And uh, we sort of just uh, raised ourselves uh, in, this, in the creeks and just doing what country kids do when, as in the 50s, uh, the, the parents were really in absentia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, the parents were too busy uh, with sorting out their own complicated lives. And uh, I can't, my children ask me now, uh, who are all becoming quite successful Two graduated, three graduated this year, one from high school, one with a master's, one graduated from Emory. But I remind them that my parents never mentioned once how I did at school or if I had any homework. So so that was how I grew up. It was complicated. And um, my vision as a teenager would to be a good horse trainer and working on a cattle ranch somewhere in the outback. And that was my dream. Not much beyond that. And uh, then uh, Vietnam War came, and myself and my brothers, three for three uh, on our birthdays were drafted. Whoa, all three of you were all drafted. three. And um, so my older brother went off to Vietnam about midway through. The end of high school, I guess I was equivalent to a junior year here, failing in all my grades because I wasn't interested in anything particularly academic. I was on the in the rowing crew. I was on the football team. I was pretty good athlete in the athletics in the athletics field, and uh, that was pretty much my life. And the horse I had. I had that stage bought young horses. Was training a young horse, but I was uh, somehow heard about. Uh, maybe you could get a scholarship to go to college. So I lined up and one of the vice principal, who I remember the moment very clearly because it was one of those moments in life for any person that can change your life. And there were about 20 of us lined up just to fill out the form for a scholarship to go to college. And he looked at me, he said, Reuben, what are you doing here? Wasting our time. Hmm. So somehow that lit a spark. And for the next uh, 18 months, I. Um, I would sit up all night working, and uh, never really thought I would make it. I worked every summer on the, in the outback on these massive 20 square mile sheep properties, and loved it. And I was sitting in the uh, in the uh, ranch house uh, having lunch with the, all the other workers on the property, and a letter arrived. And the manager of the, this property, and I'm out west of a place called Longreach, which is middle of. Absolutely nowhere Western in <laughs> Queensland. And she handed me a letter, and I opened it, and um, lo and behold, I had qualified with the scholarship to go to University of Queensland, and I had a choice. I could do medicine, dentistry or veterinary medicine. And of course, with my background with horses and cattle, I decided that I would enroll in the veterinary medical school, and uh, that was really uh, the beginning. So my draft was deferred for five years, and this was in 1964, 65. So I ended up graduating with a veterinary medical degree, an honors degree actually, and um, and uh, then I had to go to the recruitment center and sign up. Where, unfortunately, uh, both my brothers had returned, and they were Vietnam was a very difficult experience as. We know now in hindsight, and they both came back pretty shell shocked by the experience. Mm-hmm. But I was to go in as a, a medical corpsman, mm-hmm. not with any status, maybe a couple of maybe a corporal and be in the trenches. A week before I was about to leave, uh, and go into uh, training. We had a change in government, they abolished the draft. Huh. So I dodged that bullet. Vietnam went on with the US troops for another couple of years. We know the history there. So that was one bullet I dodged. To complete my veterinary studies, I actually had to take out what they call a cadetship where they paid um, some living expenses for me because I was working delivering newspapers and doing whatever else, dry cleaning, whatever I could to stay in school. And that bonded me to the federal government in Australia to the equivalent of our USDA here, just supervising the slaughter of animals in meat works, which was a very unsatisfying thing to do for someone who wanted to be an equine or, or cattle veterinarian. And um, it's a long story, but, but uh, that I ended that uh, largely because my parents' situation deteriorated, and I got—I um, was allowed to leave that service and go back and and help out my parents who were very very ill. And uh, so then I just practiced with dog and cat veterinary medicine. And um, second happenstance, which is interesting, uh, my dad who was. Um, uh, ran the store and who, uh, m- amongst his many problems, was always having a bottle of, of uh, sherry under the counter, which he offered to all the old guys who would come in and, mm-hmm. and meet with him. One of the old guys came in. He happened to be the dean of the faculty of medicine. And he said, Vic, my father's name was Victor, what what happened to that son of yours, the one that um, went to, went to uh, university and graduated as a vet? He said, well, he's back. He wanted to uh, go to the States and, and do a PhD in animal production, but uh, and I had applied for Texas A&M, but I didn't get the scholarship there, so there was no chance. He said, tell him to come and see me. He said, uh, he should do, if he w- wants to do a PhD, he should spend an extra four or five years and get a medical degree. Mm-hmm. I never thought about becoming a physician, medical doctor. I went and saw him and he said, you should do it. And I said, okay. So I went back to, for my second degree in, in medicine and worked as a veterinarian for five years to put myself through medical school. And uh, that's how I ended up with a medical degree. That's it's a lot of studying, a lot of determination. Um, well, I think about, you know, that that when you come to a fork in the road, you have to take it. And yeah. Yogi Berra's message. My, Yogi <laughs> Berra. And... Uh, in fact, in my life, uh, I would tell any young person that when you come to those folks in the road, you you have to uh, be prepared just to change it up and do something different, no I matter mean, how, um, how difficult it is. it's really really anxiety producing and very hard work to really change direction in life. So I graduated in medicine and then thought I would become, because of my background, some rural um, family physician. Mm-hmm. And then you have another fork in the road, I was chatting to uh, someone I happened to be in contact with. He said, you should go to, the, if you can, and I can help you, the best hospital and do your internship. It happened to be in Sydney, which is a major city in Australia, 600 miles south. And I went to uh, a wonderful uh, uh, internship residency at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney, mm-hmm. where I was attracted to... Uh, cardiology because of the, in the 1970s, the epidemic of heart attack and stroke and vascular disease in those days was extraordinary. And no one understood exactly what was causing all these heart attacks. So uh, I completed my cardiology boards and training and uh, was so interested in the field that someone uh, mentioned, well, you know, you should uh, think about going overseas and getting some experience there. Mm. But to do that and get a job, either in those days, it was either the United Kingdom or the USA, you really should get a PhD first. So at that point now, uh, in my late 20s, still had never uh, having any decent income, but working all my life doing something, first veterinarian, then moonlighting as a physician, uh, weekends, nights, uh, to keep myself alive, I completed a PhD so, uh, in, in cardiology. So that was the, uh, now the end of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were treating heart attacks and there was no treatment. We would watch them come in and their heart muscles would just uh, die. They would come back in with heart failure and eventually they would expire The bypass surgery was a very traumatic and very difficult operation. It was only new in those days. And uh, I did a lot of work uh, with what's known as coronary angiography starting in 1976. And we would look at the blockages in the heart, and we were impotent to do anything except ask the surgeon if they thought they could operate. But often they did not because these people were too sick. And then I happened to hear about an amazing man, his name was Andreas Grunzig. He uh, invented balloon angioplasty, not just in the heart but in the legs. He did his first case in 1977. It was a miracle with a wake patient talking to him. He was able to feed this little balloon up into the blockage and relieve the blockage, and the patient's problem was solved for the most part. And uh, a video of that procedure appeared in the hospital. So I'm finished with my PhD and I'm looking to what I should do in life. I had applied to the US and I did get a fellowship at Harvard in Boston, which was the a prestigious place for an Australian to go. And one of the uh, senior physicians at Royal Prince Alfred said, you know, this guy is onto something. You've just seen a video of what he's learned to do. He's teaching the whole world how to do this. And he just moved to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And why don't you reach out to him? So I wrote him a letter out of the blue. No email back then. No email. And in fact, about uh, six, six weeks later, I get a telegram because it was like a telegram, mm-hmm. right? That was how you communicated. He said, I could really use you at Emory to work with my research on how to move this field forward. When can you get here? So, um, Many at Royal Prince Alfred said I was crazy to turn down the Harvard job because Emory University in the deep south in Atlanta, Georgia was not well known in those days, although it was become very famous under this guy, Andreas Grunzig. So uh, by the time I got my PhD thesis written and accepted and figured out my life, I hopped on a plane and got off in Atlanta, Georgia early in 1984 with... um, a national Heart foundation scholarship that paid about $5,000 a year, uh, 200 bucks in my pocket, a very good education, a will to to succeed and uh, got to know Andreas very well and started working on all his projects, including big prospective national institutes of health randomized trials. And so we became close and uh, I prospered. And I was on top of the game there working with him. And then 18 months later, he tragically dies in a, an aeroplane crash. He was flying his own Beechcraft Baron back from Sea Island, Georgia. I was waiting for him to do rounds that night. We had six cases lined up the next morning. At that point, people flew in from all around the country. In fact, from all around the world for us to do this. He had the most experience in the world. And I was gaining that experience with him. He tragically passed away. Uh Emory University then turned to me and said, uh, we would like you to stay and continue his work. And that, uh, that was another fork in the road, having reached out to this man, Andreas Grunzig. Hmm. So I'm at Emory University, but I had come to work with him on a two-year J visa, which meant after two years and you can add on another year, you had to leave the country for two years to be able to stay here maybe get a J visa, get a green card. And now it's 1987 and 88. And I was working on the, the developing the first heart stamp. This was really to become one of the most important things I did. But I was about to be ripped out of the country and sent back to Australia. And I had uh, chairman of medicine, chiefs of medicine, uh, senators from Georgia, uh, the attorney general, of the U S who was from Georgia at that time, whose name I'm blocking on, wrote a letter for me. And the um, immigration service turned all this down a a binder, (laughs) a binder of about 50 pages I was a national treasure, and I had to stay. And they, they turned it down.
0: Oh man. At that, we're going to take a Gary, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And we're going to come right back and hear more of this, this story of, (laughs) What happens? Does the government kick you out or let you stay? Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling would like to remind you to bring your reusable bags when you go shopping for groceries, coffee, toys, or whatever you're looking for. Reusable bags are good for the environment and your wallet. Remember to wash those bags frequently. They do get yucky and you want to keep your food clean. As a community, we've already helped remove millions of single-use plastic bags from the waste stream, and now we can reduce the use of paper bags purchased by remembering to put those bags in your car and grab them when you go shopping. Call 307-733-7678 for up-to-date hours of operation. Additional support comes from the vault of Jackson Hole, Jackson Hole's only climate controlled wine storage facility and offering temperature controlled storage for businesses. Call 307-248-6392. Talk to Chris and connect today. Gary, welcome back. So enjoying this story. of your, of your life. There's certainly some things that you've mentioned to me about growing up in Australia that I want to hear more of, but I want you to finish what we're working, what you're working on right now. So it's about 1977, 1988, your visa is expiring. You've had everybody who is anybody and it's related to the state of Georgia that could write a letter for you to stay and why that's important because you are working on the first heart stint and the immigration office just said no. <laughs> so what do you do?
1: So this was a very again a very difficult time. So I've told you a little bit about all the challenges in my life, but that was quite something to have to leave all this. Not just the stent, but I was working on some major national trials to prove as we did eventually that using balloon angioplasty that would become heart stenting would be able to replace bypass surgery in very, very large percentage of patients needing the blockages taken care of. So I'm struggling, but I'm working hard. I was the senior guy there. I would stay at the hospital till 10, 11 at night. We would do six, seven, eight cases a day. As the senior, so junior, uh, faculty member, I'm sitting in the intensive care unit because we had to work through the through the femoral artery in the groin. And these patients were always at risk of bleeding. So your job was to sit there for a half an hour, three quarters an hour till the bleeding stopped, Mm -hmm. make sure the patient was stable, then you could go home. So I'm sitting with this lovely old guy who had flown down from New York City, Uh, his name, uh, he's now passed, was Selig Burrows, a wonderful man. And he said, "Um, well, you're great to be sitting here at 10.30 at night after you've been working since 6.30 this morning. Um, tell me a bit about your, yourself, your background. And I told him the entire story, and uh, he was fascinated. I told him how I was in the spine. He looked up. He'd been through you a know, heart procedure, but he looked up, and he looked at me in the eyes. He said, maybe I can help. He said, a friend of mine in New York is Sam Hausman, who was a very prominent attorney in New York at the time. He said, that's not the important thing, but he is a very good friend of the president who was... Uh, George H. Bush, the first G- George Bush. He said, let me, let me see what I can do. Two weeks later, I got a letter from uh, Sam Houseman to say he spoke to George Bush, the president, and it would be taken care of. Hmm. And so the rest of the story starts there. Again, another incredible moment that um, who knew? I mean, I guess it says a lot for being in the moment and talking and... Uh, been present uh, as I was with that patient. So I got to stay, and then uh, we did the very first balloon expandable heart stent at Emory in September 1987. Uh, we then started, uh, there were a lot of challenges with that. In those days, no one believed that you could put metal inside the really delicate coronary heart arteries in this beating heart Uh it was considered outrageously foolhardy to think this would work. But I did uh, years of of work where my veterinary background helped because we did a lot of studies in dogs and uh, atherosclerotic rabbits and pigs. And all this published work was very, very valuable. I ended up submitting that for an, an MD thesis back in Australia at the University of Queensland, which I got a few years later which is my fifth degree. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we were successful. The first FDA approved heart stent was called the Genturco Rubin stent. Cesar Gianturco was an incredible radiologist who originally came to Emory and said, I have an idea for a heart stent, but he came with a completely different design. And together we worked out how you could make something that would bend and flex in the arteries, and how you could get it there working in an awake patient from outside the skin all the way up the aorta, taking some tough turns into the heart arteries and then getting it into the spot. That was the challenge. Well, heart stenting uh, changed the way that we treat heart disease. It became a billion-dollar industry and has saved, I would say, many, many, hundreds of millions of patients over the last 25, 30 years since that uh, technique's been available. But it was a tough job at the time. Um, So that was my first uh, venture into innovation and then proving that the innovation was safe through really good scientific rigor that I'd learned during my PhD and working originally with Andreas Grunzig. But it was a tough time. Uh, At one point during the early part of the trial, there were all sorts of questions. And I was, again, challenged. I was actually lecturing in Thailand. I was traveling all around the world, teaching people how to use balloon angioplasty, how to use stenting. And I was in three in the morning in a hotel in Bangkok. And I get a call to say uh, from the chairman of the the new chairman, uh, who didn't know me of the department at Emory to say there've been uh, these allegations that your work is not um, correct and I'm putting you on suspension. So for someone in a medical career, uh, that's potentially a death knell. So I get back to Atlanta, Georgia, and I find out what the the challenge was. It actually came from a disgruntled uh, physician who wanted a job that I allocated to someone else and he had support from Some cardiac surgeons who thought, you know, uh, we don't really want the standing thing around. They're going to take our business. So there was an investigation, and they found that everything I had done was absolutely accurate, was um, pristine, rigorous. I was reappointed and, uh, again, moved past the challenge. Life moves on. I then was offered an incredible job leading the interventional cardiology department in Birmingham, Alabama, at the University of Alabama which was a step up to full professor in medicine and radiology. And uh, so I moved to, to uh, further in the deep South to Birmingham, Alabama, which is where my uh, horse activities uh, were able to expand. And eventually uh, in the South, that's how I got to Jackson. As I, as I mentioned,
0: I I love it. And we both have, as we talked earlier, we both have some connections to Birmingham, Alabama. My mom grew up there and, my dad, my grandfather taught in the dentist school there at UAB as well. Um, Gary, I, I'm i at a loss of words here, but um, as far as what you've accomplished in the world of heart treatment and how many lives you've helped save with uh, your original work there, uh, thank you. Absolutely amazing. Um, I so appreciate you taking this time to sit down and and be so thorough with me and Somebody as driven and as passionate of you, of course, would have more projects to work on, which you're working on now. I'd like for you to touch a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about you were in such a remote area of Australia when you were growing up, and you're Jewish. How did a Jewish family end up in such a remote area of Australia, and what was that like growing up in that era In Australia,
1: well, the 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 family, uh, my father's family, uh, escaped Russia actually, Vilnius, and went uh, across to Scotland, where there was all the immigration uh, from the UK to Australia in the early uh, 1900s. And so, my grandfather got on a boat with with his wife that he met in Glasgow, and they arrived in Brisbane in 1913. My mother's family, interestingly, were some of the earliest Jewish families in Australia. In fact, the first recorded uh, Jewish marriage uh, in Australia was my six generations removed uh, great-grandfather, Michael Chaim, who, uh, uh, in fact, uh, found a nice um, uh, Irish girl who was in Australia and she converted. And I have the copy of that ketubah. So there was a (laughs) lot. A long yes, it was quite it, yeah. because it was the first recorded Jewish mm-hmm. marriage in Australia. So an interesting history. But my my father's family were from Brisbane, and then as uh, my mother and father got into more and more sort of personal financial trouble, they sort of moved out of the city and more into the rural area where they where where I grew up. And um, so uh, it was tough. 1950s, 60s in Australia. Uh, in the rural areas, it, there was a lot of uh, anti-Semitism still. It was post-war. Um, it was not easy to have a name like Rubin, actually. If it wasn't Connolly or Smith or something, you were, you were different. So it was, it was tough. We didn't really have any other Jewish friends. The one thing my mother did, to her credit, is she, on high holidays, would take us into the what was really a conservative Orthodox synagogue in Brisbane, which is still there, built in the 1890s. And, uh, and she did, uh, at the age of 13, as is done, have a tutor come out and teach me, as she did with my brothers, and uh, teach me all the Hebrew I knew for a really an Orthodox mitzvah. Hmm. And so, as is the tradition, I guess, at the age of 13, I learned how to study, and I knew I could accomplish learning. Maybe that's how five years or four years later, as a high school student, when I finally grasped that I needed to get to work, if I was going to make anything of myself, I did have that successful experience behind me. I knew I could, could, could learn stuff and um, pass the test, which the Bermisfer is, you know, particularly in orthodox service. So my Judaism was something that was there, but uh, as happens, it can easily uh, disappear in a very secular society. And in fact, um, after a very successful career at the University of Alabama for eight years, where in fact I went on to develop a number of other very special techniques, particularly for the first time stenting the artery going up to the brain. Wow. So I sort of, was, for some reason, had this background where I could take chances, reach out into new territories, new opportunities, and I established a whole new uh, technique, method for using stenting in the arteries of the brain. But through that, uh, uh, my wife and I decided we would move to New York City to further my career. I took up a position as uh, chairman at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. And that was the first time in my life at age 48, before I had any children, that for the first time I felt I was now a part of a very large Jewish community where. Uh, you were recognized as Jewish, where it was easy to be Jewish, where you could join the temple up the block, walk to Shabbat services with a kippah on, and people wouldn't throw stones at you, uh, which was pretty much how I felt as a young boy in Brisbane back in mm-hmm. my early days. So Judaism, in fact, uh, I realized, has always been there for me, has been a fundamental guiding set of, have provided a, Fundamental set of guiding principles, and I wonder how much they contributed to my um, success. Who knows? But uh, that's the story.
0: Well, it's hard to, I guess, measure a lot of things in life. But when you put them all together, of what each person goes through and and learns, that's what builds us who to who we are. That's what makes us a person. And and I'm I'm sure. At thirteen, studying for an Orthodox bar mitzvah and never have seen seeing Hebrew whatsoever, and all of a sudden you're getting it, and you had a bar mitzvah probably within a year of the first time you, you saw Hebrew.
1: About eighteen months. Okay.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, that that showed that you had the ability to do to accomplish greatness because there's most people who study it for many many years <laughs> and barely get it. Um, so to get it in eighteen months is. Quite remarkable and at one of the most rigorous levels as well and orthodox. And so now you're in New York City. I mean, well, you were in Birmingham and you continued your work with cardiology and stent work and continued to do that in New York City, I take it.
1: I did. Uh, we had already owned the property here in Jackson mm-hmm. and we had renovated the old 70s home that was on the property. And so we would spend all the summers here and, uh, Four children came along in five years, and they spent a lot of time here. We were here full-time, 2001 through 2003, and, um, and then I got an offer to go back to New York City uh, to even bigger things, which I, I did, uh, challenging again, but then it was uh, having Jackson in the summers and for as many weeks as we could in the winter. And I asked the kids, the kids were asked where they lived, Uh, they would say, well, we go to school in New York City, but we live in (laughs) Jacksonville. And then uh, when we moved out here full time, they completed their studies here Mm -hmm. at the community school, for which I'm very grateful because they they did a wonderful, wonderful work with these kids who have all been very successful in college. Uh, The ones that are through and one is in the middle and one just started next year. So uh, New York was wonderful, the, the yin and the yang of the, the city and then being in, in Jackson. And then uh, six years ago, we were back out here full time, of course, and I had to commute still. Uh, I ended up going back to practice in the sort of twilight years of my clinical career, still running a lot of research and device development, mm-hmm. back to Birmingham to a big private practice back there. And then, when COVID came, at the age of 72, I decided it was time to hang up my um, medical procedural spurs and to focus uh, very much on the Jackson community. So that has been, in fact, uh, despite what has been an incredible lifetime of of uh, of accomplishments and joy and challenges and some hard times, these last couple of years here full-time in Jackson have been by far
0: the most rewarding that I've had. And now you have just had the first flight for an air evacuation company that you've just started, which um, in this rural area is until you live here or need it, <laughs> because you're visiting here, you don't realize how big of a need it is. Stefan, we have an amazing community hospital here. I've
1: had some surgery done there. Recently, and they do an incredible job. It's a very small community hospital in this isolated mountain valley. And uh, we need to move about close to 300 patients a year to either a tertiary institution or to a big regional center. Uh, I've spent my life with very sick, treating very sick people with strokes, heart attacks, heart failure, shock. And I was really a, quite concerned that for us in Jackson, we could not get out of Jackson uh, without, with, with, except with great difficulty. The helicopter comes from Driggs, but the helicopter from Driggs can't get here if there's clouds or ice or snow or wind or weather. And to get a, a fixed-wing plane in could take up to five hours, which is too late. Mm-hmm. We know now that for the heart, for the brain, time is tissue. And so the sooner we get someone on a plane to Salt Lake City to Idaho Falls was so important. So two years ago, um, I got together with uh, a wonderful uh, pilot here in Jackson, Kim Harrower, And we worked for two years. We've actually done now uh, 13 flights. We started in uh, end of February. We flew someone in desperate need last night at about 11 o'clock. We got the call. It's been a lot of work, uh, but it's been one of the most gratifying things I've done for the community because everyone in the community will benefit. We're a group of Jackson people who have done this, nurses, medics, pilots, and uh, our position is that we will get people out and worry about how much it's costing later because lives, as far as I'm concerned, and good medical care is, you can't value it Mm -hmm. in dollar terms. So we do that. We're about to uh, look at also putting a, a helicopter here, a rotor here, so we have both a fixed wing and a rotor here in the valley that can better serve the community. Uh, we hope we can work with search and rescue on that as well. Another opportunity to improve uh, the outcomes for all of us, whether we're, as I do, ride horses in the rocky trails in the backcountry or whether we're uh, skiing in the backcountry or on a snow machine somewhere. Uh, whatever. So this has been one of the most gratifying things that I've done in my entire career beyond all the, the medical work to put my expertise back into uh, the community. So that's been the most important thing in my life for the last two years.
0: Well, thank you for your dedication and commitment and for the health of our community. What's What's the name of the company that you started?
1: So it's uh, Mountain Air Medical. Uh, we're a very small uh, group, uh, but we're here for the community. We have a hangar at the airport. Uh, we have 24-7 medical teams and pilots here ready to zip people. As I said, our 14th flight, uh, life-saving flight, was just last night with a, with a uh, evacuation of Salt Lake City.
0: And why have the need, what is the need between, since you have the fixed wing, why would you also need the helicopter? what would that bring?
1: The helicopter, it provides a little bit more immediacy in mm-hmm. some cases. For patients that need to get to Salt Lake City, the helicopter is takes too long mm-hmm. that it can get there, it, or even to Idaho Falls. It's not pressurized. It's very crowded. It's very noisy. The medical crews have a hard time if they have to, for example, treat a heart rhythm problem or ventilate a patient. Whereas the fixed wing has more space, it's faster, Hmm. pressurized, quieter, more room for the medical staff, and frankly, room for a a family member. So we think the fixed wing is uh, overall better, and it can get you to Salt Lake. If you're really sick, uh, the university in Salt Lake City, the the U of U is perfect for you. There are a lot of other conditions, though, where people uh, need to get to Idaho Falls. In that case, if the weather's good, which can be, then to have a helicopter on the roof of the hospital is just that much more convenient for that case. So what we need in Jackson for the community is both. We need a fixed wing Mm -hmm. because there's a real need for that and all the advantages I mentioned, but we also need the helicopter. And search and rescue uh, need a helicopter as well. And so we think we can work with search and rescue to uh, uh, meet their needs and meet our needs
0: mm-hmm. uh, with our with our pilots and crews. Fabulous! I have a lot of friends that uh, and acquaintances that are on the search and rescue team, and you hear about how much they use helicopters for the rescues that they do out here in in this area. And I know they would certainly appreciate all the support that you can help provide them and. Yeah, for our community, time is of the essence when when somebody's having a major medical problem, and you you also hear about even I think some people think okay, major medical somebody's having a heart attack or they fell and had a brain injury, but then there's also um, people who go into labor early right. and they have to be evacuated out because yes, we have a fabulous medical facility, but it's only so large, the size and the, the team can only handle so much so there's even people in pregnant early pregnant stages of pregnancy that need to be flown out and we're very fortunate in our community to have people who are so caring such as yourself to offer such caring steps for us and i appreciate it
1: we live in a fabulous community uh in in by many measures Mm -hmm. but we live in this very isolated mountain valley that we all love But at that moment, which is totally unpredictable for anyone of any age, as we've learned recently, with some of the tragic accidents and medical conditions that have occurred here, even in the last couple of months, that we need to get people out and we can't depend on an out-of-town service. This community deserves its own dedicated medical evacuation service.
0: Well, I, I appreciate the work and that you're doing many, many times for Mountain Air Medical. We'll uh, be sure to put some information in our show notes about Mountaineer Medical. Gary, you've seen so much and accomplished so much in your life, and you've thrown out little nuggets about life, especially when, when you get to the fork in the road, take it. What are some parting words of inspiration or wisdom that you would like to share with people that they could reflect on as they're wrapping up listening to this absolutely inspiring and just such an educational journey that you've had i appreciate it what are some final words that you'd like to share with us
1: i believe that all of us everyone uh we face many personal challenge, challenges and there are there are deep valleys and 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 some very high points we rise to but there's always another valley i've learned that uh there's always another day that uh, meet the challenges, stay with your goals, see the challenges as opportunities, uh, find, uh, find joy and have a passion for what you're doing. Keep working through that joy and passion. And uh, ultimately, life has a wonderful way of rewarding you, one way or another. And I think that uh, that's the lesson. Life is not linear. Life is a... Uh, a series of sine waves. And for some of us, they can be very steep with deep valleys and, and uh, high ridges. And some of us, for, for periods of time, it's r- rather f- flat sine wave, but it's, that's what life is. And uh, move forward. You never know when you, that day is going to be your last day. So find, find your passion in your life and the joy every day, um, knowing that tomorrow it can be a lot better. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, that's a lot to think about and so appreciated. Thank you, Gary, for taking the time out to come and talk with me. And thank you for your contributions.
1: Be my pleasure. Thank
0: you, Stephen. You're welcome. To learn more about Gary and Mountain Air Medical, visit the thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 146. Thank you, everybody who keeps me on the air. Those five star ratings keep it going. Thank you to my wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, and my editor, marketing director, Michael Morey. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.